I want to assure you that nothing like that has ever happened at our house. Well, um, I, I suspect that um, you're not going to like this message. That is perhaps not the best way to start a sermon, but um, that was my first thought when I read over my notes on Monday. Because of the way this fall series has worked with the extra pieces around small group support and the video teaching and the book and the daily devotions and all of that, I have to finish my work in the spring. So the sermons are not 100% done, but they're 80% done, and I just set them aside, and on Mondays I look at them and clean them up and get ready to go. And when I read it over this Monday, I thought, perhaps I need to dial this back just a little bit. The distance between um, what this book advocates and how we live is maybe a little bit too great to try and close in one message. The distance between uh, the warnings we find in this book uh, about greed and about money, the suggestion that greed is a deadly sin, right, a cardinal vice, and the way we live and the wealth that we traffic among. And, and the idea that greed is okay, right, that greed is, is good, to quote uh, Gordon Gecko, greed is good, greed is right, greed works. Um, I thought maybe I need to go a different direction. I mean, really, let, let, let's, leave, let's leave Gordon Gecko out of this for a second. We have, we have Adam Smith and Milton Friedman arguing that greed is expected and that it's even uh, a necessary and helpful fuel for a capitalistic and consumer economy, that it sort of helps everybody win. And uh, in that context, we are to be expected to look out for ourselves and, and, you know, an act like maximizing our 401k is, is rational, good living. And then on this hand, we have all these warnings about wealth. And we have uh, a Savior, God himself, who when he lives among us lives very simply and very humbly and, and says things like, um, blessed are the poor. And if you have two coats, give one of them away. And, and he, he teaches in this parable um, a, a message that sure seems to say, do not make the maximum contributions to your 401k plan. Let me read that. That, That's that's heresy by today's standards. Let me read to you the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. 
This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. As I said, my my initial thought was that the gap was too great uh, between uh, the teachings of Scripture and the way we live, um, and that perhaps I needed to dial back the message ever so slightly. Uh, I briefly considered just assigning it to Garth or Siler or somebody else. And then I reminded myself that um, what God teaches us is the way forward. It's the way that works. Vices are habits and patterns that destroy us, that erode our soul. Virtues are habits and practices that lead to joy and life, and, and they are the way forward. And I do no one any favors by editing any message. Uh, that's not my job. And so uh, I want us to just look head on at the topic of greed. By way of definition, let me say that greed, um, greed like envy starts with disordered desire. It is an attachment to good things that somehow goes wrong. It's not wrong to have desires. But greed uh, is excessive love or desire for money or the things that money can buy. Greed, sometimes it, it shows up on the list of, devin, of seven deadly sins as avarice, which comes from the, the root word aveo, which means to crave. It's to want something too much. Uh, greed is pretty much focused on material things, uh, as opposed to envy, which tends to move more in the direction of wanting the opportunity someone has, the personality, the life of someone. Greed is more focused on money and the things that money can buy. Now, it is not wrong, it is not greedy uh, to work hard in order to have things. It's not wrong or greedy to appreciate things. Right? We are not expected uh, to live a life that is indifferent to the good things or to the joys or pleasures of this world. It's, it's not uh, wrong to have money. Right? Hard work is celebrated in Scripture, and money is, is spoken about with both positive and negative descriptions. Right? It's quite clear that very few people can handle money without it eroding their faith, without them putting hope and trust and confidence for the future in money as opposed to putting that in God. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It is a bit toxic. It's hard to handle, but money itself is not evil. As a matter of fact, money is quite useful. The problem is that uh, greed is, is wanting more than what we need. And greed also uh, comes with a little bit of indifference to the things of God. And greed comes with uh, a callousness towards the needs of other people as well. If envy is, I want what you have, greed is, um, I don't really care what you have. I don't really think about you much at all. I just want what I want, and uh, I want more of, of what I have. And it tends to lead us to acquire and accumulate a whole bunch of stuff. <clears throat> 
let me back up and come at it in a slightly different direction and, and share five observations about greed. First of all, um, stuff is not bad, right? Uh, the material world is not bad. That, that's Plato, not Paul, who has pointed us in that direction and suggested that the material world is somehow inferior to the spiritual world. What we hear in this book is that God created the world and declared it good. And of course, Jesus shows up in this world as one of us and is perfect. There is nothing inherently evil about material things. Uh, this world is broken, but it is not evil. Material things are fine. As a matter of fact, per God's plan, we have needs for material things. Food, air, water, shelter, clothing, right? We have needs. There's nothing wrong with those needs, right? As a matter of fact, it's a good thing when those needs are met. And we want to live in a world where everybody's needs are met. And not just their needs, right? It's not that we are, we are expected to live at a subsistence level. Jesus was radical. His teachings were radical, but he was not an ascetic. He fasted, but he also feasted. He was accused of being, because he went to so many parties, he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Right? He lived a simple life, but he never said that the material world was evil. The problem is not with stuff. Okay? The problem is with us. Number one, stuff is not bad. Number two, stuff is never enough. Greed is insatiable. It, it persuades us that the glass is not 90% full, it's 10% empty, or we need a bigger glass. Right? That's just the way things tend to unfold for us. We were created to enjoy a relationship with God. A God who is infinite, who is majestic, who is beautiful, who is powerful, who is, who is almighty. No amount of stuff can ever take the place of an infinite, almighty, holy, majestic, beautiful God. If God is not front and center, we cannot fill that gap. And try as we might, all we do is put more stuff in the void. And, and by its nature, the stuff, while it will make us happy momentarily, cannot keep us happy. And so we just look for more and more stuff, right? I mean, that's just, that's just reality. You might say, I'm, I have said, if I have X, I will be happy. X is all I need. I'm just looking for X. And then X arrives, and you think, I need 2X. And then I need 3X. And then I need 10X. And it just keeps going because X is never enough. We were created for God. Stuff is never enough. You were made, you were, you are too significant to ever be satisfied by new shoes or a fancy car or a remodeled kitchen, right? That is never going to work for you ultimately. 
Aquinas, back in the fourth century, said it very well. We will never be able to satisfy our deep human need for an eternal good with any amount of temporal imperfect goods. And Aquinas, who came along about a thousand years later, uh, changed it a little bit by saying there are, uh, there are natural needs and there are artificial needs. And natural wealth is when we have enough to satisfy our genuine human needs for goods. Artificial wealth is what we're after when we want to satisfy our needs for artificial things. I want to remind you, we live today in a world where very smart people wake up every morning with with the goal of persuading you that your life is incomplete until you buy what they're marketing. They're very good and they create a sense of need for things that are artificial needs. And, and because we're broken, the whole greed thing is a real challenge just trying to meet our natural needs. Forget the artificial ones. I mean, we, we, can, we can never get there. A number of years ago, I, I did a wedding for a, um, a couple, and uh, I knew her fairly well, didn't know him much. And when I met him, he struck me as being uh, very um, bigger than life. He was, he was very confident, and he was a bit much. Uh, I did the wedding, didn't think a whole lot of it, uh, didn't spend a lot of time listening to the ways he was going to change the world because there just wasn't a lot of oxygen left in the room when you were around him. A couple years later, like two years later, I heard that the company that he was talking about starting at the time that he was married, he had been offered $30 million for it and said no. Three years after that, he sold it for $150 million. A couple months after that, he called me. I'm sure at his wife's suggestion, I was working as a management consultant at the time, and he asked if I would lead a a strategic planning retreat for the team he had assembled to sort of uh, shepherd the next chapter of his life, and he wanted to give some of the money away, and he was looking for my help on this. So I I met with his team, and we spent a uh, a couple days, and about halfway through the second day, I, I said to him, you know, it's clear that your wife wants to give a bunch of money away. You, not so much. And I'm just trying to help this team reach some consensus and, you know, hey, it's your money and you've got, a, you've got a plan, so why don't you tell me how much money are you wanting to give away? And let's just put that aside and do this other stuff. And he said, I, I haven't made that decision. So I said, okay, well, tell me this. You've got $150 million. How much money do you need? And he said, well, I need a billion. And I asked him at that point, well, whatever led you to believe that a billion would be enough? Right? I mean, you're 30 years old and you have 150 million. So why are you thinking that you'll be satisfied with a billion? Now, before you think, 
I would be perfectly content with 150 million. Let me remind you that if you make $50,000 a year, you are in the top 0.3% of the world's wealth. And if you carry debt, that would be a suggestion that maybe what you make is not enough. Right? I'm not against all debt. Some people are. I think debt's pretty bad. I'm not against all debt, but we, there's a lot of debt out there. Let's not talk about our national debt. U.S. government's had enough problems in the last few weeks. We'll leave them alone for a minute. Consumer debt is at staggering levels. Right? Most people carry $16,000 month to month on their credit card. The average college student has four credit cards by the time they graduate. The average household has 14 credit cards. There's a lot of debt out there. And debt, in one sense, is a suggestion that we're greedy. It's an index of how much beyond what God has provided we believe we need. <clears throat> it's Stuff is never going to be enough. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of what we have to come to the awareness of. Stuff is never going to be enough. Contentment is never achieved by material things, only by a changed heart. Right? True, lasting contentment is never going to be achieved by material things. It's only going to be achieved when God changes our heart. <clears throat> Most people never learn this. Right? Some people do by being reflective and by submitting uh, to the virtues that are laid out and by following God and having the Spirit of God transform their heart. Some people actually learn this because they get so much that they realize that they have everything they could possibly ask for and they're still not happy. So King Solomon is one of those who found himself in that situation. Solomon is one of the few people in history whose net worth easily eclipsed that of Bill Gates. And uh, he goes through a period in, in his life where he says, I denied myself nothing. If I, if I saw something and I wanted it, I bought it or I took it. He was king, so he could just take things. I, if I denied myself nothing. And then he writes this. <clears throat> the one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. <clears throat> Jim Carrey, prominent 21st century theologian that he is, said this in an interview recently. I wrote it down. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that that's not the answer. Greed is a heart problem. It's not about quantity. <clears throat> it puts us on a conveyor belt that has no stop button, says there, there's never enough, only more. You say, stuff is never enough. Point number three, stuff is not ours. <clears throat> this is not simply the observation that oftentimes we don't own things, things own us. This is just a recognition that everything everywhere belongs to God. He is the creator, 
he retains all rights. We are stewards of his resources, temporarily entrusted with his stuff and expected to invest, to use, to steward his resources in ways that are congruent with his values and ethics. Matthew 25, among many other places in Scripture, make that very clear. We're all given different amounts of gifts, time, talents, abilities, opportunities, right? We are expected to use those time, talents, resources, money, opportunities in ways that honor the owner, God. And we will be held accountable for what we do with what has been entrusted to us. But we are stewards, never owners. Stuff is never ours. C.S. Lewis makes this point in a really uh, brilliant way in the Screwtape Letters, this uh, dialogue, this fictional account of of a dialogue between two demons. Uh, Screwtape is the senior demon and he writes a series of letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a, you know, a, a, a novice demon. And Screwtape is trying to coach Wormwood on how to be a demon. And he, there's one particular letter that talks about this issue of, of owning things. And he says, the sense of ownership. So this is a demon writing. Fictional. But this is Lewis's account. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. We produce this sense of ownership in them, not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, my country, and my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. Right? So he's saying, we, we use these words, obviously, in very different meanings. Talk about my shoes is different than talking about my dog or talking about uh, my house or my, my wife or my kids, uh, my country, right? my God. And, and screw tape is saying, if we work hard, we can get them to think that they're using the word my in all of these senses in the same way that you would use it about my, my shoes. Okay. <clears throat> he goes on to say, And all the time the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human about anything. In the long run, either our father, and by this he means Satan, he's a demon writing, so in the end, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each person. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy, this is God he's talking about, at present, the enemy says mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic ground that he made it. Our father hopes, in the end, to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. Stuff 
is never ours. Number four, some of the stuff we have belongs to others. I'm about to meddle. I'm about to, um, I'm about to push. Many people are far more comfortable talking about their sex life than they are talking about their money. Uh, but the Bible makes the argument that many of the things that we have in our closets and in our garages and in the storage units that we have rented and not looked at in the last 18 months, many of those things don't belong to us. They belong to the poor. Basil, a 4th century Christian leader, said this, It's the hungry one's bread that you hoard, the naked one's cloak that you retain, and the needy one's money that you withhold. Wherefore, as many as you have wronged, you might have helped. Rebecca DeYoung, professor at Calvin College, gives a 21st century paraphrase of this, and she says, The second donut that you ate today belonged to the poor child that went to school without breakfast. And the new coat that you're wearing that is in the closet next to four other coats that are slightly out of style belongs to the homeless person that you walked by downtown last week. Now let me pause and acknowledge that this is not the way economics works. It's not a zero-sum game, right? The food that I eat, I'm not taking it out of the mouth of someone who's poor, right? We can make more bread. Uh, we can make more coats. And I would additionally argue that those who, who take the risk to make more bread and make more coats should be rewarded for taking those risks. I want to acknowledge that. However, we also need to understand there are systemic inequities in the global economy. And, and some of us have far more than we need. And God has a heart for the poor. And in the ancient world, the vice of, of greed was balanced not simply by the virtue of generosity, but also by the virtue of justice. In other words, to not help, to be greedy, and to not share what we have was not simply considered to be an act of failing to be generous. It was considered an act of injustice. I think that they're right to suggest that some of the stuff in my closet, in your garage, and in the storage lockers all over this country belongs to those who have need. Number five, greed is dangerous. Stuff is not bad, but there's never enough. Everything everywhere belongs to God. Some of the stuff in your closets and mine belongs to others. Number five, greed is dangerous. Some would even suggest that greed is the most deadly of the seven deadly sins. I don't, I don't think that's the case, but I do recognize that greed is a deadly sin, right? The deadly sins are not the worst sins. The deadly sins, the, the cardinal vices, are those sins that give way to lots of other sins. Greed does open up Pandora's box. It leads to all kinds of other sins. And greed has this 
Greed has the same business plan as cancer. It's just grow, right? It's not contribute. <laughs> it's just grow. That's, that's the plan for greed. <clears throat> I, I was thinking of this um, in light of the, what I'm learning about what's going on with my father. And I've shared about this a couple times. Uh, you might remember, you might know that six weeks ago, we were told that my father had six weeks to live because of a, a particularly aggressive form of leukemia. Um, he is doing much better than that, in fact. And they, they now say, for reasons that I don't completely understand, we're going to measure his life in months. Perhaps we're going to measure his life in years. So it's, it, he's, he is, at the one hand, declining. At the other hand, the news has been much better. But what he has, I mean, leukemia is, is sort of, um, it, it's the multiplication of white blood cells that won't do their job. And they're defective. And the whole plan of, is just grow, right? It's just, it, they push everything else out of the way. And there's a sense in which that's what greed does. And greed pushes other people, and more significantly, ultimately, greed pushes God out of the way. Greed is dangerous. <clears throat> Let me make a, uh, a radical observation. <clears throat> I think that God keeps some people poor, and he encourages his followers to live below their means in order to keep people close to him and dependent upon him. And I, and I think this, I, I hadn't seen this before, but I, I think this for two big reasons. Not because Jesus said blessed are the poor and not because of all the ways Jesus identifies with the poor. I think this because of, of what we see in the Old Testament. There's two rather shocking um, observations that I, I discovered in my research on greed. The first is just the, the, the fact that God calls Abraham out of the fertile crescent. Right? Abraham's a semi-nomadic shepherd wandering around in the Silicon Valley of his day. And he leads him into Hebron, right? Israel, Palestine. He leads them to this really arid, forsaken land. I mean, the land flowing with milk and honey, it, it's, it's called flowing with milk and honey because it's a rock. The message was, you're not going to be farmers, right? You are going to be shepherds, right? You're going to have goats because it's a big rock, and that's all that's going to be able to get by. And honey, you're going to live off the land because the land doesn't give up much. Everybody thinks, plush, utopia. No. That's not the land. The land is difficult. God leads Abraham out of the Silicon Valley into Hebron. Then, later on, he will call Moses back out of Egypt. Egypt has lots of resources going for it. And he calls him back to this land that forces dependence upon him. And then, when we look at the Old Testament law, we see that the Old Testament law is designed to keep people poor. Just think about it, right? Everybody else could work seven days a week. God says six days a week. 
14% economic disadvantage. Everybody else can farm their land 50 years out of 50. Every seventh year is to be a year of jubilee. You can only farm your land 42 years out of 50. 16% disadvantage. Right? God says there's to be no capital accumulation. Every 50 years, everything you have is to go back to the original owners. Farmers in Israel are to not, far, not to harvest all their crop. They're to leave some for the poor. Right? I mean, you could just go down the list of the things that God puts in place and the ways he limits them. And then additionally, the other cultures were free to go to the temples if they wanted to and to make an offering. God is expecting offerings beyond the 10% that is required. Easily, easily, you can, you can do the math and come up with the idea that, that a Jew living in a desire to follow God's law would be giving more than 50% of their income away. I think in part to break the back of greed and to keep us dependent upon God. So, what do we do about this, this deadly vice? Well, I would suggest... Three things. First of all, we need to be more reflective. Right? We, we, need, we need to stop every once in a while and remind ourselves that uh, we have more than 99% of the people who have ever lived and that having more than that is not going to lead to contentment. Right? That lasting contentment is not going to come from having more stuff. And we need to ask ourselves, how am I doing? What would a dispassionate third party looking at my life say? If they had access to my checking account or credit card statement, if they knew how much I made, if they knew how much I gave, if they saw where I spent my money, would they say that I am generous or would they say that I'm greedy? The average person on the planet today looking at the way I live How would they respond to that? Secondly, we need to give more away. Um, This is not a stewardship message, um, but um, we need to give more away. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I have, have, I'm on record as saying that I think it's been our practice and my belief that we should give least 10% away to the church, and more besides. And in previous last two years, I have issued the 1% challenge. And I've said, all right, figure out how much money you're giving to the church, uh, figure out what percentage that is, and if it's less than 10%, step it up by 1%. And just keep doing that until you get to 10%. And by the way, be giving in other directions at the same time, give generously. This has been what we have done, and there's great freedom that comes with, with uh, breaking the back of greed. Greed throws a tantrum. I, I mean, it, it can be uh, difficult at times to do this, but we started with this when we got married. I was making $16,500 a year as a college pastor, and Sherry was a volunteer, and we had student loans. So it can be done, not easily, but it can be done. And as 
uh, as we have made more money, uh, it has been our practice and privilege not simply to give more because we're giving the same percentage of a larger income, but to step up consistently the percentage of money we're giving away. Right? I believe, I, 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 can, I can say this without, any, without blinking or without any shame, I believe that in the end, when we stand before God, most people are going to say, what was I thinking? Why did I keep so much of God's resources? Why did I spend it on myself as opposed to being generous? What was I thinking? And so, you want to break the back of greed? you are going to have to be generous. And I would set that 1% challenge in front of you, give more away. And then finally, I would say to you, the way forward is to run after God. Some religions, some worldviews would teach you to deny your desires. That's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is that our desires are misdirected. And once again, C.S. Lewis says it far better than I could. So let me read this. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We do well to focus less on stuff and more on God. The peace, the joy that we are after is not going to come with more stuff. It's going to come with more God. I've given you plenty to think about and talk about in your groups this week. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you are a loving, generous, wise, giving Father. We thank you that you gave first. We thank you that you have set an example of giving. And um, we acknowledge that it is so easy to be sucked into the into the uh, never-ending quest for artificial needs. Um, help us to, f- to figure out what it looks like to take steps forward, to, to be generous people who seek justice, and uh, to be um, open-handed with your resources temporarily entrusted to us. Guide us to that end, we pray in Christ's name.